Hello and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter covering higher ed. Today's episode is about tribalism. I talked to a philosophy professor who's exploring the question of this surge of tribalism we're seeing in the U.S. in politics and culture right now and how that's leading to polarization and, and it seems to be making it hard for us to talk to each other on campus and off. Well, okay, I said he's a philosophy professor, but technically... That's not true anymore. You see, our guest this week, Kevin Delaplante, quit his job as a tenured philosophy professor at Iowa State University three years ago to teach online courses and, and podcasts from his basement instead. So he's exploring issues of what he calls tribal literacy, not in some scholarly journal, but on his podcast aimed at a general audience. It's called the Argument Ninja Podcast. In other words, he left the tribe of professors to strike out on his own. And that gave him a personal run-in with tribalism itself. He said back when he was thinking about switching out of traditional higher ed, he kept his plans really quiet. I, I, I never told anyone in my department who I didn't trust. It was secret. It was. Um, it yeah. was, in some ways, an open secret. So I could say, well, I'm working on these video courses uh, as a supplement to my my own teaching and you, and, and they certainly were supportive of that. Right. You, know, you could take workshops to teach you how to use audio and video. It's, you know, the institution was interested in faculty who were uh, pursuing audiovisual projects. As soon as you start talking about, about that, Oh, it's like, Oh, you, then you're not serious. You're not a serious academic anymore. I first talked with Kevin a couple years ago, right as he was making this leap. And that was back in the heyday of so-called MOOCs, those massive open online courses you probably remember um, that big-name colleges were starting to offer low-cost higher education to this to a wider audience. It looked like there was going to be this big realignment. But as you all know, the big shiny revolution didn't exactly happen. And we've, of course, we've talked about that in past episodes. So I was curious, what happened to Kevin? I wanted to see how this independent scholar is doing. And about what he thinks of this broader landscape of online education that he's part of. And I wanted to hear his ideas about tribalism. We'll have that conversation right after this. Oh, I'm back quick. Someday soon we'll have an ad in this spot right here. But today I wanted to try one last time to ask you to fill out our podcast listener survey. It just takes three minutes. In fact, we literally saw that the average time on our survey tool says it's three minutes. And if you do it, you'll be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. So that's a nice incentive. But we really appreciate your feedback to help us shape some changes we're making in the show. This is the final week I'll be asking for about this survey. Uh, it closes on February 5th. So please visit bit.ly slash edsurgepodsurvey. That's bit.ly slash edsurgepodsurvey. All right, back to this week's conversation. Maybe start with how did you get into being, creating these um, educational videos and podcasts sure. in the first place? And I started creating videos as um, as an extension of my classroom teaching, where you know some huh. version of the the flipped classroom, where you're doing lectures all the time, you're doing the same intros to this figure or whatnot, and so you imagine, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I could have a a nice version of that lecture recorded in a, a format that you like, and then you could upload that on a web server, and the students could look at that, so then you could switch up the kind of activities that you're doing in your classroom time. Right. So in other words, you've, you, you can kind of get down the Kant lecture or whoever um, 
That's that, right. You know that you're, that you, and then have that, and just say, go read, go look at this before you meet. You do, you do uh, end up if you doing if you're teaching the same material all, a lot, then it's a bit like you're a stand-up comic, right? Where you've got you've got bits that you do all the time, and you slowly modify them over the years. In fact, as audiences come and go, and your own understanding changes, but um, but a lot of it is you can put down in some kind of canonical standard form the way that you tend to like to teach it and so why not try to capture that in some in some way so then you can uh so that means that the students then get to uh, access that content asynchronously right on their time um and that was something that uh, you know Khan academy got and uh, understood the uh, the value for students of being able to access content at at their convenience in the environments in which they're comfortable uh, and be able to see the same lecture over and over again. I think the broader reason why I was thinking along these lines at all was because I sort of always had an interest in uh, public education. And when I started as an undergraduate student, I was a physics major and I became a philosophy of science student. And then I went to graduate school basically to, to, to study philosophy of science. And I kind of thought, thought of, of uh, my heroes at the time were people like Carl Sagan. He was doing the Cosmos, which was in this public, you know, he was, you know, a well-known astronomer, um, but uh, he was also using uh, television and film and these other multimedia technologies effectively to communicate these big ideas to a broader audience. And I re really- Yeah, he was kind of an early- really celebrity academic in this in the sciences a celebrity academic he was probably the most for some period of time he was the most famous scientist in in uh in the u.s at least if people knew a name uh, of a living scientist it was probably him right during mm -hmm. the 80s because he was on mm -hmm. johnny carson and, show, and shows like that i was thinking about that even when i was in graduate school and i was thinking about what would be cool ways of communicating these interesting philosophical and scientific ideas uh, in a way with, that was accessible to the public that went beyond just writing books or text. And so I was thinking about cartoons and comic books and videos and animation all the way back in, when, when I was a grad student in the, in the mid to late 90s. So that was and it helps kind of that you the, have some skills on the, on the visual side, right? I mean, I've seen your drawings um, on, on your videos. Right. Kind of an amateur, frustrated cartoonist. But it took a so while you, for the technology to try to catch up to my, the ambition of the, that I had for sure. Sure, sure. And then um, you, so you started doing that while you were teaching as a supplement to your teaching. That's right. Making these things like uh, videos and podcasts. And then it, it became you know, obvious that as you accumulated them, you was like, oh, this, this has become not just a lecture, but it's like a, a whole unit w within a course. It's a whole module. And then it becomes like if you strung a few modules together, you have like a full, like practically a course. So it was natural to think about, well, if I was creating these online courses, this is before, kind of before the sort of the MOOC revolution, for, for sure, is the push to online teaching uh, really pushed into uh, academia or higher ed. Mm -hmm. But uh, the idea of sort of the notion was certainly around er earlier. And um, I saw that. But so it was this combination of, for me, the, the whole thing that what came together was this combination of here's, here's a skill set that I'm learning. Here's a product that I'm creating that has some, that could have some value beyond the classroom environment for these two students. And, and you can see a window to a possible 
strategy if you wanted to leave academia, if you wanted to go off and be more independent, or you, you know, if you if you didn't want to die in the hometown that your university or college is located, then <laughs> sure, sure. this is a way to do that that had was very attractive for me, partly because it appealed to the creative side of my personality and my interests, uh, as well as the intellectual side. But it also um, uh, it, it appealed to a kind of entrepreneurial side where, oh, maybe I could get to do I could do the academic kind of research and thinking that, that I've always enjoyed doing without having to do it within the constraints and the politics and the other hassles that come along with being a professional academic. And that, of course, was very attractive, too. So in 2015, you around that time, you made the leap and you actually left your university job. What was it? And, and so um, what was it that was there something that kind of put you over the edge or, or was the, the real why then, you know? Why then? Well, um, one was I had set myself like a 10 year limit when I started because I had this, you know, you know, back in the day and by then it was 15 years. And so I was thinking either like, how long is this going to go on? So you've How been in Iowa State for 15 be? years. Yeah. I'd been there for 15 years. Well, at the time, at that time, it was probably 11 or 12 years. Got it. And I thought, I, st- I have to start planning an endgame for this if I'm going to fulfill this, this vision that I had. And, and that's going to take some planning. So and it, the vision it was to move to a years. certain place, as I recall? The vision was, was partly to, move, to, be, to be mobile. So to move wherever we might have, have wanted to move. So in that case... Uh, my, my wife was never a fan of the town that we were, um, we were living in, in, um, when, when I was an academic, nothing wrong with the town. It's very nice, sure. but she's sort of a, a coastal person and we sure. were in the American Midwest. So, uh, so we were thinking about, you know, ways in which we could be portable and mobile. And that means really having a, a location independent business from which we, th- we need to replace my salary with a location independent business. And how do you convert teaching and online to courses into, you know, so th- that's an obvious one way to do it because it is digital products, online hosting, you're not, a, you don't have to be tied to a classroom or a certain or a particular institution. So it was attractive that way. We also were interested in moving back to our hometown. So we had grew up in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, uh, and our uh, extended families are all here. So that was an opportunity to come back and be closer to our families. Um, great. Which we did in, a, in, a, in a 2015. So, so you had this vision and then the, the, you were sort of testing the waters at that point with sort of some of the stuff you're doing. Yeah, I think the, probably the most positive um, jumping off moment was when I realized I'd made $30,000 in extra income. Mm-hmm. in like 2012 or something like that. I thought, okay, $30,000. That was a combination of speaking, speaking gigs that came not out of my academic work, but because of the videos and stuff that I'd put on um, YouTube. So I got speaking gigs, for example, at teaching conferences on, crit- on critical thinking and cognitive biases, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that came out of, because someone saw a video not because someone had read a published article of mine. Uh, speaking gigs plus money that, that was coming in from sales of these online courses that I was able to put up. And the first year that I put my courses up on Udemy, so Udemy is, this, as you know, so your audience knows, an online 
video course marketplace for mm-hmm. both courses and for um, instructors. And the first year I put my courses up there, I had quite a large amount of, like about 12 hours worth of content. And I threw it all up there back in 2013. And in the first month, I made like 800 bucks. Hmm. Ah, okay. It was the only uh, kind of course that was doing that kind of content. Mm-hmm. And there were five or 10 courses doing Photoshop, you know, but no one was doing this. Um, and so I realized, oh, there's another venue here. I, there's, there's a sort of marketplace that I can, I can work that. So the combination of, uh, for now, you know, since then, the combination of uh, courses on Udemy, courses on, that are uh, money that comes in from uh, the hosted uh, courses that I have at the Critical Thinker Academy. I also have a Patreon page for people who support my podcast and, uh, and any other free con- content I have and the YouTube channel which is all free. And Patreon uh, is one of those sites so, that lets people give you money for just like support of you supporting creative endeavors, um, monthly right. kind of small amounts of money from a lot of people. The idea is it adds up. Yeah. So that plus some consulting work and some, you know, you know, the, and, and speaking gigs has added up to uh, uh, sustainable income. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to say. Yeah. And so I guess that's it. So that was a couple of years ago. Is it, is it sustainable? Were you, did you pull it off? I'm still here. <laughs> I'm still here working from my basement in Ottawa. Uh, and it's been, you know, three years now. If you had it to do again, uh, would you do it? Same thing? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't regret uh, the, the path. Sure. Some people might might wonder, ask me if I wanted to, if I was going to leave, would I have wanted to, to leave earlier? <laughs> Instead uh, of later. That's okay. uh, not later. No, I, I had my fill. But one thing that I realize I have an advantage of, because I spent 16 years in the system, as it were, but I was also teaching and learning in that environment. Um, and I, I developed a skill set over that time. Mm-hmm. that I really value and has, and has paid off for me. So I wanted to ask you, yeah. when, I, when we spoke a couple of years ago, I have to say there felt like there's a lot of energy. You know, like you said, it was like the MOOCs were kind of starting out when we talked and there felt like this wave starting and that maybe you were on the cusp of something where there'd be a lot of Kevins out there, former professors doing, doing great on outside of the system and, and kind of going freelance professor. Um, but I will admit, I, I feel like I'm in a point where I feel like I was kind of wrong that uh, that was seemed like it was going to be a big thing by now that a couple of years later, I would just be easy to pluck a million of, you know, very, a lot of people in different disciplines like you doing this independent work, but I have not seen that. I guess I'm curious, have you, what do you think of like where things are now compared to those, that moment when you left as far as the, the landscape of this independent educator world has it has it not grown as much as you thought well you have a better perspective on the the trend issue i think than maybe <laughs> i do sure in terms of you know getting a, a, uh, your your pulse on whether there's larger scale trends you know shifting away one thing that happened i i, I would assume i think is that the academic Institutions all bought into online courses. Mm. So now they saw an audience that had to be served. Students were, 
in order to get competition for students. Um, so you were filling a, to... you were stepped into a void, but then they've come into the void too, into the gap, the, the traditional. Well, colors. if you if you identify the gap as uh, try having to meet the educational needs of diverse kinds of students, for example, adult learners, people who are long distance, would otherwise be served by a by a remote. Uh, educational experience, right? Mm -hmm. So there, there's that. I think what you're, I think the equation though is about, is on the uh, supply side. That is, um, there has to be demand from uh, educators and teachers who want to make this shift. And it's quite risky and it's an unusual path. And there's lots of, there's every social incentive that you're that you learn as you grow up, as you become socialized into academia, you are socialized not not to think this way, mm. not to think about going out on your own. Uh, you're you're socialized to believe that research has to be done a certain way. This is this is the path, and once you deviate from that, once you start considering these alternatives, you are. Uh, it's not something that you share. So here's one thing, you know, when I was harboring these interests in all alternative forms of education and, and possible career paths, I, I, I never told anyone in my department who I didn't trust. It was secret. It was. Um, it yeah. was in some ways an open secret. So I could say, well, I'm working on these video courses uh, as a supplement to my on to, to, to my, to my own teaching. And you, and, and they certainly were supportive of that. Right. You, know, you could take workshops to teach you how to use audio and video. It's, you know, the institution was interested in faculty who were uh, pursuing audiovisual projects. But the entire bucket took a bunch of those free courses. <laughs> through these other things. But that part there, as soon as you start talking about, about that, oh, it's like, oh, you, then you're not serious. You're not a serious academic anymore. Right? Uh, so yeah. if, if your promotion, if your promotion from assistant to associate to full mm -hmm. depends on people trusting that you are invested in academia as a, as a lifelong profession, yeah. as soon as they sense that you're interested in uh, parting ways or something else, it's harder to persuade them that you're serious. Sure. So you hide that part. So there's a lot of pressure that way. So if you talk, if I talked, I mean, I remember at the time talking to people secretly and they'd like, yeah, I'd love to do this. Or they're kind of privately kind of envious of the idea of having the freedom to do the, the, these things, but it was all kind of hush hush. So in that sense, I think that there's, there are, you know, the broader picture is that there's these incentives to uh, do things, to maintain uh, the status quo, even yeah. in, in an environment where those opportunities, the, the jobs are, are even more rare. and. Um, a lot of, and there's even still growing, swelling the ranks of the adjunct lecture, lecturer yeah. class. I also never thought that my moving to teaching online was some indictment of uh, classroom teaching mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. Or I also never imagined it as a replacement for it. Mm -hmm. and, and I still don't. The, the difference between, you know, developing YouTube videos and stringing them in a sequence to provide a structured learning experience. The difference between making that an actual teaching is night and day. Mm. That is, it's the difference. It's the same as the difference between buying a textbook 
on biology, say, and going to a classroom where they teach the content in that textbook. So if I have, uh, you know, my video series might be a series of lectures, you know, video lectures, then it becomes like a multimedia textbook. You're not trying to replace the old you, you, what you have, as far as your job. Your new role, you're not replacing the undergraduate experience. It's, it's impossible. It's, it's a fundamentally different activity. Mm -hmm. But the podcast, for, however, is a way, I, I view that as a way for me to work out uh, conceptual issues about, that broadens my understanding of what critical thinking is, of what, why it's valuable, of, of, of how to think about it. So there I'm doing, I'm doing intellectual work of a productive kind in public. And people get to listen to that, you know, ongoing, my ongoing evolution as someone thinking hard about, about these issues. Huh. So there, you know, so, so that's a different kind of, so people follow along and they get different kinds of value out of it. And here, it's not quite a student teacher relationship. I'm not teaching them anything in the podcast, but they're listening to my internal conversations with myself ab about these issues. And eventually those ideas as I, you know, arrive at them, show up in courses, show up in videos. Huh. That's um, almost like your version of the scholarly paper working through arguments as, in your new, in your new system. It's exactly, it's a way, I mean, I always, the reason why I got into academia in the first place, the primary reason was because I love to learn and I was, I, I didn't want to do it in order to teach. I wanted to hmm. learn. And it, but it turns out that the best, one of the best ways to learn is to have to teach hmm. it, as we all know. So in leaving academia, I was leaving behind the classroom environment, which, was a, which is a place where I learned a ton over years through having to produce lectures and sure. content and teaching. So what I've tried to do in order to maintain my own enthusiasm, my own interest, the things that I, I was um, excited about when I was a teenager was how can I, how can I give me a structure where I can learn new things in an effective way? I can do that by teaching hmm. it. So I guess I wonder, you know, I'm sure people that those people that might have be watching your career choice very interestedly would wonder, you know, is there something though that's a downside to the path you've chosen that it seems like there's a little bit of self-marketing that just has to happen in this world of the Udemy courses and the the podcasting and being on your own. And is there is, do you worry sometimes that you end up wasting time on that because you don't have the structure or, or does that even possibly negatively influence the fact that you have to make money, you have to get people to somehow sponsor or you or the, or, or your work, um, that that might be a, a negative influence on the work that you are protected from in your old, in, in a, as a faculty member. Well, I think that's the, um, the commercial side of this proposition is going to keep some people away from it for sure. If they don't, if they, if they recoil at, at that thought, then uh, they're, they're going to have a hard time because there's just no doubt that you have to think like an entrepreneur some, some fraction of the time in order to do this. Business can't be a bad word and in income. Business and income cannot be bad words. And academics are very poorly sourced poorly socialized into this. They have there are a lot of mindset issues, I think, with academics who uh, have never had to confront 
the economic realities, even of the institutions in, in which they work, about thinking about who's paying for what and why. It's, it's an interesting uh, uh, dynamic. I think uh, if you're an independent content creator, you do have to be careful about trying to chase, uh, chase audiences and try to do what you think audiences want as opposed to what you think is important or what you're good at. <laughs> sure. Just like any business. Right? Sure. Well, um, this is so interesting. And I wanted to ask about some of the, some of those thoughts that you're, you're working out, um, out loud on your sure. podcast. And, and, um, one of those that you've been, that you've kind of touched a nerve with, it seems like is your thoughts on what you call tribal literacy. Um, could you say a little bit about what, what that is and sort of, obviously since you've made your move, we've got a very different kind of political environment and national environment with, with, it feels like with tech and politics with, um, you know, Trump in the white house and a lot of people questioning the, the platforms that we, people were so excited about like Facebook and Twitter, but now are being questioned a little more critically as to how they're really playing into our lives. What, what do you, what is tribal literacy? Tribal, I, I view it. Any kind of literacy is, uh, you know, the basic capacity to think critically about a particular issue, to have to have, have a critical conversation about a topic. So, and tribal literacy for me is uh, is a is part of the background knowledge that's relevant to critical mm -hmm. thinking generally. If we care about, we care about, I'd say the the primary, the three primary critical thinking values are believing true beliefs as a over false. Right. Like there are certain facts that are either true or false. Um, right. You want, you're, you're interested in avoiding falsity and false f falsity and uh, pursuing truth. You're interested in making wise decisions as opposed to unwise or irrational or harmful decisions. So that's there, the belief element. And then there's the decision element. Um, and that, 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 that covers sort of classic conceptions as, of, rationality about, you know, you can have better or worse ways of pursuing the truth and better or worse, worse ways of making decisions. The, th the third leg of this stool, though, is something like independence of thought, like being able to think for yourself, being able to say, I wish my kid could grow up and become an, an independent thinker. I want them to think for himself or herself. So that signals a different set of capacities and skills, something like uh, you could claim ownership of your own beliefs and values and choices. Like they're yours, they're mine. They weren't just you know, something I picked up from the crowd or from my peers or from my family. And if asked to justify or give an account of why I believe this or value that, then I can do so at least to a certain mm -hmm. extent. And and claim that those reasons are ones that I can recognize and identify with as, mm -hmm. as mine. So that sense of, of uh, developing what I call intellectual autonomy is, is part of the package. And then when you think about all the things that can interfere with the pursuit of these critical thinking goals, one of the important ones that we've come to see to realize is our tribal identity groups have a big role to play in that. That is, when you, what we've come to learn over the past 40 years, even though it's been part of human nature that I guess we've always been aware of in, in some sense is that when someone identifies strongly with a particular social group, um, that in such a way that it 
causes us to think about in terms of us versus them, people who were within the group of which I'm a member and people who are outside the group, then we tend to develop these set of attitudes and beliefs about the other people and about ourselves that are influenced by this tribal identity. We tend to think that we're more rational than they are. We tend to think that our choices kind of are good more guys justified and bad than guys. We tend to think that it's a good guys, bad guys thing. And that the way that breaks down the set of attitudes and values has both a, a moral component where we think that they're right. worse people right. Yeah. Right, than us. And, and there's an epistemological component. We, we think they're less rational than us. Mm. They must be either if they don't see what's so obviously true for us, then they, they've got to be compromised some way in their intellectual ability or there's something, something wrong with them. And that division follows along, follows along, along scales. You're going to have a little bit of that where you think, huh, that's just him or her, you know, but you can still be have, you know, friendly conversation with people with whom you uh, disagree. And then when you, when, but when the polarization ratchets up, and the feeling of distance between you and them increases. So they can become less and less like you, as, you know, or seemingly so. Then all of a sudden you have this, what I call pathological tribalism happens. When not only are they wrong, but they're beyond the pale. Like you can't, I can't be around them. I don't want to associate with, with So it sounds anymore. like what you're saying is um, a little bit of tribalism is now bad, but there's a, a certain, there's a tipping point. A little bit of tribalism is essential for human flourishing. Right, because we like to root for it's absolutely essential. And, and be part of families, and of course, like right, that's the no tribalism. Tribalism is per se mm -hmm. is not the problem. Excessive polarization mm -hmm. is the problem, and um, in fact, you know, some amount of tribalism is essential for distinctively for pursuing distinctively human uh, forms of culture and knowledge, like science. You don't have science unless you have a a social identity culture that in which certain norms of expectations of, of discourse are honored. You know, that, those are Got tribal it. groups. Got it. It's not a solo sport. They, and, and, then, and then we all benefit sure. from that, right? When we have a culture that is spills over into our cultural matrix, as it were. So where so, are we now? So where uh, are we so now? I've been thinking yeah, this about is, this. That framework is, that framework <laughs> is so, you know, this is, I have to admit, when I first was hearing about your work, when we talked four or five years ago, it all seemed like, you know, nice to know, like philosophy. And I, I'm a liberal arts major. I was an English major. I love this stuff. You don't have to convince me to have a long conversation. But then right now, it just feels like just, um, time. yeah, it's like a different, I'm hearing you with a different, the same things you're saying probably, but I'm like, what? Okay, well, what? right now, I read the news every day and just wondering how people, you know, can't, disagree on what happened at the Lincoln Memorial a week ago with some, or a few days ago with a student group that went there exactly. and, and the people, people keep calling it a Rorschach test. Some people see the same facts and say, shame on you. And then the other people say, oh, same facts, shame on the other side. So what, where, what, what are, how worried are you about our level of, of functionality in a way of, in our democracy? I'm very worried, but, but for me, this, you know, it would be great if I was in the classroom right now teaching <laughs> during this at, at a college, right? Back years. in Iowa State. I yeah. don't know why. What? What? Why would you ever use a textbook? <gasps> you know, it's like the news is enough to give you lots of interesting things to 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 sure. think about. Uh, and the textbooks are not yet written. 
that will address this phenomena properly, at least not undergraduate mm. textbooks. Mm. It's just not there yet. That is the the kind of epistemological crisis, I think, that we're sort of seeing in the so-called the post-fact era, post-truth era. And you the buy that we're in that era. Over the past three or four years, especially. Those are not exaggerations, you think? Uh, they are not exaggerated. I mean, it's people are talking about it for a reason. Right? Uh, I don't think what I'm, I, my thing is like, okay, what's my skill set? How can I be helpful here? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a philosopher of science by training. And I think of, and I was when, you know, back in the day, I was a kind of a complex systems okay. philosopher of science. Yeah. I studied complex social and physical and gotcha. biological systems. I think social, social polarization, that's a complex social phenomenon. It probably has a set of complex origins, <laughs> like multi-scale, multi-factor or, origins. And so I've been, part of what, what I've been doing with the, my recent videos and some of the stuff on the podcast is trying to uh, map out uh, my understanding of the dimensions of this problem. What is tribalism? What yeah. is polarization? What are, we t what are people saying about what the causes of these are? or what what's fundamental roots are. And so what I'm engaging is, is a kind of, if I was to be, you know, I, I could be writing a book yeah. about this, right? It's a, it's a book length topic. And so when I sketch out my next podcast episode, it looks like it's the section of, of a book, you know, I'm looking at the, at the, the sections right now. Cause I'm the section of the title of the next book podcast is how to think about the causes of polarization. Hmm an exercise in multiple mental hmm. models. So this is me, you know, the things I'm going to be doing over the next week or so uh, on, on this topic is exactly what, a, what an academic would do if they were interested in exploring the boundaries of the, the scope well, of, so of, of, of this problem. So you're reading, you're looking, around, you're doing research, you're sort of, okay. And I'm not teaching in a classroom, so I have the time <laughs> <laughs> to read stuff, and, you know, do, do, do these projects. And um, I, I hope that one thing that, that I was hoping to, you know, to share with people yeah. who are one of the misconceptions about this is that when you leave academia to do online teaching, you're basically giving up research. Mm. You're yeah, giving, people you're, might you're, think you're, that. You're yeah. slipping into an, an educator teaching mode. And one of the things that I've, you know, that is certainly not the case for yeah. me. In fact, I've probably written more and done more reading that's research stuff than it, while since I've been an independent, you know, person than I was as a paid academic. That's interesting. I, I, I added it up one day about the, the number of stuff, the number of words I've written. Yeah. And this, and the number of books I've had to buy and yeah. read. It's way more than I was doing in a comparable <laughs> period of time when I was, when I was huh. an academic. So that's a, uh, that's a myth, I think, that people have like, oh, I just want to, if I leave, I'm just going right. to be a teacher and teach baby courses online and teach a bunch of them. And that's how I'll do it. It's like an online version of adjunct right, professor. Right. That's the concern. And that's something I've tried to avoid. Yeah. And in fact, the idea that you could pursue an independent research agenda in this public space is, I think, a newish idea that people aren't, aren't thinking about enough. Well, this has been great. I've, thank you for all the time and, and for talking with us today and sharing your, your views on your research and, and your sort of interesting path out of, in, in, in this new kind of, of, of job you've kind of carved out for yourself. Thanks so much, Kevin.
Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure to catch up. (laughs) So in a way, I'm still trying to figure out the lesson or the takeaway from Kevin's story. Is he the beginning of a new kind of public independent scholar? Or is this just a unique story of someone with a rare mix of skills and interests willing to try this crazy thing? And if this is going to be some big trend, is that a good thing or a bad thing for higher ed and for the broader society? Do we want a world where each scholar has to convince an audience of students to come study with them? And could that lead to broader access to education? Or should we double down on fiercely protecting our campuses to give the structure to philosophers and other thinkers to thrive and explore whatever they want, no matter how popular their ideas are or not? Or can we have both? Maybe the lesson, if there is any, is that the tribe of professors should be more open to experiments like this and not see it and not so quickly dismiss it as just threatening. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. And one final reminder, please take three minutes to fill out our listener survey, if you haven't already, at bit.ly slash survey. Thanks to all of you who already did it. We'll be back next week with another conversation about the future of education. Thanks for listening. <laughs>